Chapter Eight of Molly Make Believe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Molly Make Believe by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. Chapter Eight. Everything that was discreet and engaged to be married in Stanton's conservative make-up exploded suddenly into one utterly irresponsible speech. "'You little witch!' he cried out. "'You little beauty! For heaven's sake, come over here and sit down in this chair where I can look at you. I want to talk to you. I—' Pirouetting once more before the mirror, she divided one fleet glance between admiration for herself and scorn for Stanton. "'Oh, yes, I felt perfectly sure that you'd insist upon having me pretty,' she announced sternly. Then, courtesying low to the ground in mock humility, she began to sing song mischievously. So Molly Molly made her a face, made it of rouge and made it of lace. Long as the rouge and the lace are fair, oh, Mr. Man, what do you care? You don't need any rouge or lace to make you pretty, Stanton fairly shouted in his vehemence. Anybody might have known that that lovely little mind of yours could only live in a— Nonsense, the girl interrupted, almost temperishly. Then, with a quick, impatient sort of gesture, she turned to the table, and, picking up book after book, opened it and stared in it as though it had been a mirror. "'Oh, maybe my mind is pretty enough,' she acknowledged reluctantly. "'But likelier than not, my face is not becoming to me.' Crossing slowly over to Stanton's side, she seated herself with much jingling, rainbow-colored, sandalwood-scented dignity in the chair that the doctor had just vacated. "'Poor dear, you've been pretty sick, haven't you?' she mused gently. Cautiously then she reached out and touched the soft, woolly cuff of his blanket wrapper. "'Did you really like it?' she asked. Stanton began to smile again. "'Did I really like it?' he repeated joyously. "'Why, don't you know that if it hadn't been for you I should have gone utterly mad these past few weeks? Don't you know that if it hadn't been for you, don't you know that if—' A little overzealously he clutched at the tinsel fringe and the oriental lady's fan. "'Don't you know—don't you know that I'm engaged to be married?' he finished weakly. The oriental lady shivered suddenly, as any lady might shiver on a November night in thin silken clothes. "'Engaged to be married?' she stammered. "'Oh, yes. Why, of course. Most men are.' Really, unless you catch a man very young and keep him absolutely constantly by your side, you cannot hope to walk even into his friendship, except across the heart of some other woman. Again she shivered and jingled a hundred merry little bangles. But why? she asked abruptly. Why, if you're engaged to be married, did you come and buy love letters of me? My love letters are distinctly for lonely people, she added severely. How dared you? "'How dared you go into the love-letter business in the first place?' quizzed Stanton dryly, and when it comes to asking personal questions, how dared you send me printed slips in answer to my letters to you? Printed slips, mind you! How many men are you writing love-letters to, anyway?' The Oriental lady threw out her small hands deprecatingly. "'How many men? Only two, besides yourself?' There's such a fad for nature study these days that almost everybody this year has ordered the gray plush squirrel series. But I'm doing one or two Japanese fairies for sick children, and a high school history class out in Omaha has ordered a weekly epistle from William of Orange. Hang the high school class out in Omaha, said Stanton. It was the love letters that I was asking about. 
"'Oh, yes, I forgot,' murmured the Oriental lady. "'Just two men besides yourself, I said, didn't I?' "'Well, one of them is a life convict out in an Illinois prison. He's subscribed for a whole year for a fortnightly letter from a girl in Killarney who has got to be named Katie. He's a very, very old man, I think, but I don't even know his name, because he's only a number now, 4632 or something like that, and I have to send all my letters over to Killarney to be mailed. Oh, he's awfully particular about that, and was pretty hard at first working up all the geography that he knew and I didn't.' "'But, pshaw! You're not interested in Killarney? Then there's a New York boy down in Ceylon on a smelly old tea plantation. His people have dropped him, I guess, for some reason or other, so I'm just the girl from home to him, and I prattle to him every month or so about the things he used to care about. It's easy enough to work that out from the social columns in the New York papers, and twice I've been over to New York to get special details for him. Once to find out if his mother was really as sick as the Sunday paper said, and once, yes—' Really, once I butted into a tea his sister was giving, and wrote him, yes, wrote him all about how the moths were eating up the big moose-head in his own front hall. And he sent an awfully funny nice letter of thanks to the serial letter company. Yes, he did. And then there's a crippled French girl out in the Berkshires who is utterly crazy, it seems, about the three musketeers, so I'm deartignant to her. And it's dreadfully hard work in French, but I'm learning a lot out of that, and— There, don't tell me any more— cried Stanton. Then suddenly the pulses in his temples began to pound so hard and so loud that he could not seem to estimate at all just how loud he was speaking. "'Who are you?' he insisted. "'Who are you? Tell me instantly, I say, who are you anyway?' The Oriental lady jumped up in alarm. "'I'm no one at all to you,' she said coolly, "'except just Molly make-believe.' Something in her tone seemed to fairly madden Stanton. "'You shall tell me who you are,' he cried. "'You shall! I say, you shall!' Plunging forward, he grabbed at her little bangled wrists and held them in a vice that sent the rheumatic pains shooting up his arms to add even further frenzy to his brain. "'Tell me who you are,' he grinned. "'You shan't go out of here in ten thousand years till you've told me who you are!' Frightened, infuriated, quivering with astonishment. The girl stood trying to wrench her little wrists out of his mighty grasp, stamping in perfectly impotent rage all the while with her soft, sandaled, jingling feet. "'I won't tell you who I am! I won't! I won't!' she swore and re-swore in a dozen different staccato accents. The whole daring passion of the Orient that costumed her seemed to have permeated every fibre of her small being." Then suddenly she drew in her breath in a long, quivering sigh. Staring up into her face, Stanton gave a little groan of dismay, and released her hands. "'Why, Molly, Molly, you're crying,' he whispered. "'Why, little girl, why—' Backing slowly away from him, she made a desperate effort to smile through her tears. "'Now you've spoiled everything,' she said. "'Oh, no, not everything.' argued Stanton helplessly from his chair, afraid to rise to his feet, afraid even to shuffle his slippers on the floor, lest the slightest suspicion of vehemence on his part should hasten that steady backward retreat of hers towards the door. Already she had reacquired her cloak and overshoes, and was groping out somewhat blindly for her veil in a frantic effort to avoid any possible chance of turning her back even for a second on so dangerous a person as himself." "'Yes, everything,' 
nodded the small grieved face. Yet the tragic snuffling little sob that accompanied the words only served to add a most entrancing tip-nosed vivacity to the statements. "'Oh, of course I know,' she added hastily. "'Oh, of course I know perfectly well that I ought not to have come along to your rooms like this.' Madly she began to wind the pink veil round and round and round her cheeks like a bandage. "'Oh, of course I know perfectly well that it wasn't even remotely proper.' "'But don't you think, don't you think, that if you've always been awfully, awfully strict and particular with yourself about things all your life, that you might have risked, safely, just one little innocent, mischievous sort of a half-hour, especially if it was the only possible way you could think of to square up everything and add just a little wee present besides? "'Cause nothing, you know, that you can afford to give ever seems exactly like giving a really, truly present. It's got to hurt you somewhere to be a present.' So my coming here this evening, this way, was altogether the bravest, scariest, unwisest, most like a present feeling thing that I could possibly think of to do for you. And even if you hadn't spoiled everything, I was going away tomorrow, just the same, forever and ever and ever. Cautiously she perched herself on the edge of a chair and thrust her narrow gold-embroidered toes into the wide, blunt depths of her overshoes. "'Forever and ever,' she insisted almost gloatingly. "'Not forever and ever,' protested Stanton vigorously. "'You don't think for a moment, do you, that, after all this wonderful jolly friendship of ours, you're going to drop right out of sight as though the earth had opened?' Even the little quick forward lurch of his shoulders in the chair sent the girl scuttling to her feet again, one overshoe still in her hand." Just at the edge of the doormat she turned and smiled at him mockingly. Really, it had been a long time since she had smiled. "'Surely you don't think that you'd be able to recognize me in my street clothes, do you?' she asked bluntly. Stanton's answering smile was quite as mocking as hers. "'Why not?' he queried. "'Didn't I have the pleasure of choosing your winter hat for you?' "'Let me see. It was brown with a pink rose, wasn't it? I should know it among a million. With a little shrug of her shoulders, she leaned back against the door and stared at him suddenly out of her big red-brown eyes with singular intentness. "'Well, will you call it an equivalent to one week's subscription?' she asked very gravely. Some long-sleeping devil of mischief awoke in Stanton's senses. "'Equivalent to one whole week's subscription?' he repeated with mock incredulity. "'A whole week! Seven days and nights!' "'Oh, no, 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 I don't think you've given me yet more than about four days' worth to think about. Just about four days' worth, I should think.' Pushing the pink veil further and further back from her features, with plainly quivering hands, the girl's whole soul seemed to blaze out at him suddenly, and then winds back again. Then just as quickly a droll little gleam of malice glinted in her eyes. "'Oh, all right, then.' she smiled. If you really think I've given you only four days and nights worth of thoughts, here's something for the fifth day and night. Very casually, yet still very accurately, her right hand reached out to the knob of the door. To cancel my debt for the fifth day, she said, do you really, honest Injun, want to know who I am? I'll tell you. First, you've seen me before. What? cried Stanton, plunging forward in his chair. Something in the girl's quick clutch of the doorknob warned him quite distinctly to relax again into his cushions. "'Yes,' she repeated triumphantly, "'and you've talked with me, too, as often as twice, and moreover you've danced with me.' 
Tossing her head with sudden born daring, she reached up and snatched off her curly black wig, and shook down all around her such a great, shining, utterly glorious mass of mahogany-colored hair that Stanton's astonishment turned almost into faintness. "'What?' he cried out. "'What? You say I've seen you before, talked with you, waltzed with you, perhaps? Never. I haven't. I tell you, I haven't. I never saw that hair before.' If I had, I shouldn't have forgotten it to my dying day. Why? With a little wail of despair, she leaned back against the door. You don't even remember me now, she mourned. Oh, dear, dear, dear. And I thought you were so beautiful. Then, woman-like, her whole sympathy rushed to defend him from her own accusations. Oh, well, it was at a masquerade party, she acknowledged generously, and I suppose you go to a great many masquerades. Heaping up her hair like so much molten copper into the hood of her cloak, and trying desperately to snare all the wild escaping tendrils with the softer mesh of her veil, she reached out a free hand at last and opened the door just a crack. "'And to give you something to think about for the sixth day and night,' she resumed suddenly, with the same strange little glint in her eyes, "'to give you something to think about the sixth day, I'll tell you that I really was hungry when I asked you for your toast.' I haven't had anything to eat today, and—before she could finish the sentence, Stanton had sprung from his chair and stood trying to reason out madly whether one single more stride would catch her or lose her. "'And as for something for you to think about the seventh day and night,' she gasped hurriedly. Already the door had opened to her hand, and her little figure stood silhouetted darkly against the bright yellow-lighted hallway. "'Here's something for you to think about for twenty-seven days and nights!' Wildly, her little hands went clutching at the woodwork. "'I didn't know you were engaged to be married!' she cried out passionately. "'And I loved you! Loved you! Loved you!' Then in a flash she was gone. End of chapter 8